Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The six-figure salary curse. If you get a pay rise that pushes your income over £100,000 a year, don't celebrate too soon. Your marginal tax rate could hit 60%. We explore why this happens and what high earners can do. Chinese New Year, the year of the monkey, has got off to a good start so far. Markets bounced back this week. This is Cheer Dale Nichols, fund manager of Fidelity's China Special Situations Fund, who's flown in from Hong Kong to join us. And the search for smart beta. Everyone's looking for it, but our adventurous investor, David Stevenson, reckons he's found a good way of gaining exposure. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett, editor of FT Money, and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues Adam Palin and David Stevenson, author of our Adventurous Investor column, plus special studio guest Dale Nichols. Now, if you earn more than £100,000 a year, you risk gaining entry to an exclusive club that nobody wants to join, that of the most highly taxed people in Europe. But this is the point at which your tax-free personal allowance in Britain worth over £10,000 a year, starts to be withdrawn. Those earning between £100,000 to £121,000 a year effectively pay a marginal tax rate of 60%, way above the UK's current top rate of 45% income tax. So why has this happened? And if you are lucky enough to earn that much, what can you do? I'm joined in the studio by Adam Palin, FT Money reporter. Morning, Claire. Firstly, tell us, why won't the UK government recognise that this 60% tax ban even exists? Well, it isn't a formal rate, as you uh, alluded in the introduction. It's a nice problem to have, but it's an anomaly in the tax system that comes with... uh, Each of us have this personal allowance. Back in 2010, it was decided that anyone earning 100000 they don't need it. So for every £2 earned above 100000 one pound of this allowance is taken away. The effect of this is that every pound earned above 100000 you pay an extra 20p in tax on. Right. So if you earn £99,000 and your boss proposes a pay rise, one way of getting around this anomaly would be to insist that your pay jumps to 121000 But assuming that doesn't work, your FT Money cover feature this week suggests some other ways that higher earners can claw back some of that lost allowance. Exactly. And, and really what it's about is taking your remuneration above £99,999 in a form that isn't cash. So the most obvious way to do it for most of us is to increase your pension contributions. Now, you gain tax relief on your pension contributions at your marginal rate. The effect of this, if you're earning between 100 and 121,000, is that your tax relief is 60%. Right. Obviously, in some circumstances as well, your employer will 
put their saved national insurance contributions towards your pension as well. So you, you could actually could actually get more than 60% effectively. Yeah, you'd have to be pretty good at, at negotiating to, to get that. But there are other methods of salary sacrifice. Again, professionals worry that some or all of these might be culled back in the forthcoming budget. But under the current regime, what else can you do? Well, the obvious one for parents is childcare vouchers. So until 2017, when the rules are changing, you can sacrifice some salary to gain your employer childcare vouchers that, again, effectively... So you're getting, for example, £1,000 of the vouchers for a net cost of £400. Although, as I say, things are changing in 2017, so employer schemes are going to be replaced by a government subsidy called tax-free childcare that, in fact, parents earning £100,000 or households with a salary over £100,000 won't qualify for. So giving an extra incentive for parents in that category to consider getting into to the employer schemes. Now, if you're not a parent, you might want to consider cycle-to-work schemes. Yeah, that's what I've done. Also very tax-friendly. And then there's the, there are benefits that are taxable, such as company cars. But if you're getting a, uh, no, a little hybrid or uh, an electric car, that can be very advantageous. And finally, if you don't want to give it to the tax man, could you give it to a favourite charity? Well, in fact, tax advisors will say that it's actually the cheapest time to give money if you're within this hundred to £121,000 bracket, or indeed you get the, the most bang for your, for your buck. So the net cost of giving, say, £1,000 to your charity, if you're in this bracket, is effectively £400 mm. after everything's taken into account. And also, there's a, there's a, a little ruse potentially here as well is that gift aid donations can actually be backdated to the previous tax year so long as you haven't filed your self-assessment return so it is a way of navigating say if you i don't know your your earnings for the year go up to 101,000 you could actually give 400 pounds and uh, and get yourself below it and the, and the charity will have a thousand well that was adam palin ft money reporter and you could read his full feature with details of how to use all of those clever tactics in FT Money this weekend. Still to come on the show, is the search for smart beta still eluding you? Just over five years ago, Anthony Bolton, Fidelity's famed stock picker, launched a China fund in a year when the Asian nation's economy grew by almost 12% in the first quarter. The China Special Situations Fund offers exposure through a portfolio of over 100 businesses across China and proved hugely popular with investors. Fast forward to 2016, and the investment trust, now run by Australian small cap specialist Dale Nichols, is trading on the London Stock Exchange at a discount to net asset value. Depressed by China's slowing economy, currency shocks and volatility on the Shanghai stock market, discounts on UK-listed China funds may look very tempting for retail investors with a strong risk appetite. But amid so much uncertainty, there's much to be nervous about. But here to talk about it is none other than fund manager Dale Nichols, who's come all the way from Hong Kong to join us today. Good morning, Claire. <laughs> Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Firstly, you've been saying for several months now that the Chinese stock market falls are overdone and that the crash has gone too far. Do you still think that this is the case? And what are your reasons to be cheerful? Yeah, I think you know the market is down through you know broad macro concerns, and there's no question that uh, that China is slowing, um, and it's really part of this this sort of rebalancing that we're seeing from a reliance on investment and net export 
exports uh, to consumption. But, you know, we're still talking growth rates of, you know, maybe 5 6%, maybe below the official number, but we're still talking pretty decent growth rates. And as part of this rebalancing, you know that whatever the final growth number is, consumption is going to be growing faster. So the numbers themselves are getting bigger. But, you know, it's it's still a good environment for individual companies. We're talking about a very big country with, you know, under, under a lot of structural change. So there's real opportunities for individual companies. And again, if I couldn't find, you know, some decent growth companies in that sort of environment... And that sort of growth, uh, we'd be pretty disappointed. Uh, so it's a real opportunity because a lot of the stocks are really cheap now through those macro concerns. But the fact is, there is still real opportunity for individual companies on the ground. But what about the high levels of debt that corporate China is, is carrying and the fact that the wider economy is increasingly leveraged? Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. And, you know, amongst the macro risks, the growth that we've seen in debt is the biggest concern. Now, the overall debt levels aren't, aren't that extended, but it's the, really the trajectory and the growth of debt. So, And it's really on the corporate side is where you've, where you've seen that. So I don't think you can make any illusions about the fact that there's going to be non-performing loan issues. And that's really the, the main reason that I don't own any of the, any of the Chinese banks. I think there's more bad news to come in that front. But, you know, you look at data points like retail sales and that sort of thing, the more consumption-related areas, and they continue to grow in double digits. And the FT's written quite a lot about China's so-called shadow banking system recently, which is worrying economists and investors alike. Does it worry you? Yeah, there clearly has been a lot of, you know, of growth in the shadow banking sector. Yeah, I, I think it's partly uh, due to the rules around the banks. As you may know, there's a 75% loan to deposit ratio for the, for the banks. So if you don't have you know, freely flowing deposit rates and loan rates, it's hard for banks to sort of manage that mm-hmm. and, sort of, and sort of grow. So it's, it's not too much of a surprise that you've had a lot of loan growth happen you know, off, off balance sheet. So when we look at bank exposures, we try to bring those off balance sheet loans back onto the balance sheets of the banks. And when we do that, you know, it's still, again, thinking of a loan deposit ratio sort of perspective and the sort of deposit banking in the, that's there in the system, that things still look fairly reasonable. The problems, are, I think, are, are manageable, but still definitely bear watching. How is your fund management style different to that of your predecessor, Anthony Bolton? You know, I think there's definitely more similarities. Um, we're both, we've talked a lot about macro right now, but mm. for, for us, it's about the individual companies. So getting out on the ground, meeting with companies and finding, you know, the really, the really interesting stories, particularly the smaller cap and where, you know, potentially the stocks aren't that well covered by the rest of the market and not that well understood and therefore, and therefore mispriced. You know, in terms of differences, I guess we kind of have different backgrounds and we're probably influenced by that. As you know, Anthony focused on Europe for, for most of his investing career. Myself, I've, I've been in Asia. Okay. And he's still on the Fidelity board. Do your paths still cross? Yes, absolutely. You know, we, we, we talk about market. He will point out every now and then what he's seeing, what he thinks is interesting. He can't uh, quite retire, can he? <laughs> no, no. And uh, importantly, he's still a shareholder of the, of the trust. So, um, you know, we've got to keep in touch and uh, let him know what, what I'm doing with, uh, with the trust. And as a Westerner based in Hong Kong, how easy are you finding it to build on the ground intelligence about the Chinese companies? your owning. You've said you get good access to their management teams, for example, but do you speak Mandarin? Uh, not very well. And so I, I do rely very heavily on our analyst team, both in okay. Hong Kong and importantly on the ground in Shanghai as well. And that's where the real language skills come in. And how, how do you feel when you go and see management teams? As, I mean, obviously, it's clearly a different game than it, right. than it would be from, from over here. But how open are they with you about their views of the future for China? Yeah, it really depends on the company, but you know, generally fairly open. I, f- I find, you know, we're, we we talk about the general economy, but for me, it's really about the individual company. So understanding their opportunity set, how they see the market. But I do get the sense that um, the the people on the ground are generally more positive and less concerned about some of the macro concerns that tend to get played out overseas. 
Oh, very interesting. Well, thank you very much. That was Dale Nichols, Fund Manager of Fidelity's China Special Situation Fund. Now, before our final item, a reminder that you can read this week's FT Money as part of the Weekend FT, which is widely available on both Saturday and Sunday, or read us online, ft.com slash money, and follow us on Twitter, at FT Money. Smart beta is big business, and especially so in the world of exchange-traded funds. According to Bloomberg data, smart beta ETFs represent around 20% of the $2 trillion ETF market. But should investors be excited or scared? I'm joined in the studio by David Stevenson, FT Money's adventurous investor columnist who has tackled the topic this week. David, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Claire. Now, smart beta is one of those terms that investors really get excited by, but (laughs) what does it actually mean? It's one of those awful kind of technical terms, isn't it? Beta. What does beta mean? Beta means the market. And so, in effect, what it technically means, it's just a, a third way between alpha. I mean, we're in the studio here and Dale's here with me. And alpha, Dale is an alpha stock picker. Uh, so he picks stocks. So that's alpha. Uh, and then beta is what the market does. And smart beta allegedly sits in the third way, the middle ground between there. So what it effectively does is it says, OK, I'm not going to individually pick every stock, which I think is what probably Dale and active stock pickers do. I'm going to pick a factor. Okay, I'm going to pick something like the dividend yield. That's an easy one to get your head around, dividend yield, or whether or not a stock is cheap or whether or not a stock has strong momentum. And I'm going to pick a factor, and using that factor, which is easy to express in numbers, you can then basically screen through a universe of stocks, and you can end up with a shorter list. So it's a middle way. It's a kind of, it's a cost-effective way, and it's been around for donkey's years. Quantitative investing, it's called, and pension funds have used it forever. Now, you write in your column this week that you're increasingly worried that smart beta mm, yeah. ETFs are being misused, particularly mm. by institutions like those pension funds mm. and also wealth managers. Why is that? Yeah, well, I think at the institutional level, smart beta is being sold as a way of getting extra returns, and it isn't. It's just a simple way of looking at different forms of stocks. And if you talk to a lot of pension consultants, they'll say now that smart beta is a kind of magic elixir that people use with pension funds. The, the stock markets haven't been very pleasing places at the moment. Uh, no. no. <laughs> so smart beta is a way of grinding out an extra 1% or 2% return, but it isn't. And it shouldn't be seen as that, because if really all it's basically saying, good quants will tell you, pointy head types, um, they will say, all this is about is about saying, I as an investor, uh, for instance, I'm more cautious and I want a more cautious portfolio and I'm willing to accept lower returns, but with less volatility. Or I'm more an adventurous type and I'm willing to embrace momentum, okay? In which case I might get higher returns in the market, but I'm taking more risk. Mm-hmm. So these are all just conscious choices. So what, so it, that's what's happening in the pension funds. And what's happening in the wealth manager stakes is that I think a lot of wealth managers, for not bad reasons, because they're, t- they're worried about cost, are replacing active stock pickers who aren't very active okay because not all active stock pickers are active and they're replacing them with smart beta because they think it's cheaper and more cost effective and they're sticking them in our portfolios and the problem is is that i probably think that the vast majority of wealth advisors have absolutely no idea how those smart beta ideas originated where they come from they sound like a quick handy thing so it's like i've got a client who's a bit bit defensive and they're a bit worried about you know they're maybe in their late 40s and they're worried the stock market's a volatile place i'll stick it in low volatility uh, smart beta and what they're thinking there is what low volatility beta means is the stocks probably don't bounce around as much as the main index. So our client would be happy. Well, yeah, their client may be happy, but I don't think, A, the client understands anything about the strategy. I'm not sure, sure the wealth advisor knows anything about the strategy. And B, there's a downside. And the downside is if you look at a lot of these low vol strategies, for instance, they're chock-a-foot block full of defensive utility stocks. They work for some periods of time, and then they don't work for some periods of time. So each of these flavours, and the good way of looking at smart beta 
It's a bit like cookery, subject close to my heart. Uh, smart beta is all the ingredients that you have about investing in, a, in complicated terminology. And the clever bit is about putting the ingredients all together. In a blend. In a blend. Mm. And that's the point. So the way about, there are ways to survive in the market and you need to think like a cook does. Well, you can read more in david stevenson's adventurous investor column this week about ways that he thinks you could gain exposure to smart beta um thanks very much there and thank you to our resident alpha males um in in the studio for taking part in today's podcast we'd love to know what you think about investing in china the tax traps affecting higher earners or money matters more generally you can get in touch via email our address money at ft.com or you can tweet us at FT Money. And you can leave comments at the foot of individual articles on our website at ft.com slash money. There's just time to tell you what else will feature in this weekend's issue. Former money editor Jonathan Ely tells us what's puzzling him about millennials and their money. And as usual, we have the latest share tips and director's deals from The Investor's Chronicle. The Money Show is produced and edited in London by Naomi Rovnik. We will be back next week. But for now, it's goodbye from me and our studio guests. Goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.